0: Welcome to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. I'm your host, Tracy Poffinroth Prado. This podcast is all about reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. I'm gonna be talking with parents who will be sharing their experiences of what it's like raising a child with RAD. It gets raw and it gets real. I'm also going to be talking with experts from different areas who will be sharing information about RAD, resources, and support. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me in another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy, the podcast. And today I want to introduce you to Christine Dalton. She is a rad mom, and she's also a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in a tiny town. She does a bit of everything, uh, including working with people with trauma and grief, but this today, this podcast is really about Christine and her story. She has a 12-year-old adopted son who came to her family at six and a half years old. Two weeks afterwards, Christine found out that she was also six weeks pregnant. (laughs) So now she has a 12-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much for being here to share your story today. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: We were talking about your story and you because this isn't, you're not at the beginning of your story. You're not at the end of your story. You are right in the middle of things.
1: Very much so. Very much in the thick of things
0: right now. Right. That's a good way to put it. In the thick of things. Yeah. Talk about your adoption story you were saying that uh, as a single person you did
1: foster care
0: did I did a lot of
1: respite for other foster families in the community I lived in at that point I was 25 and not smart enough to know what I didn't know so it was much it was easy in some senses and then to I went back and got my master's in social work and in that At first, really didn't have the room for foster care in the place I was living, nor really the time of working jobs and being in school. Um, And then got married, and we didn't do that for a long time, and then went back to and did a little bit of foster care before deciding to really just seek a a, an adoptive placement versus. And so that is how we came to our six-year-old at that time six-year-old son.
0: So I have a question for you, going back to when you were 25 and a foster parent (laughs) and you say it was easy. Did you come across any issues like reactive attachment disorder, attachment? Did you, I'm just trying to think from a 25 year old mindset. And like you say, being naive and just kind of clueless, right? What would we know? We don't even often know as we become parents to these kids. So I guess what I'm asking is, did you see anything and was it easier to deal with because you didn't know where you were younger or did you see anything?
1: I think that, yes, I did, but I don't think I had the words for it. Despite, you know, I had, I had two bachelor's degree in psychology and sociology, and that was not something that had been covered. I grew up in an adoptive home. I have a, a sibling who's adopted and my mom was adopted. So adoption issues were not foreign, but the That diagnosis, I don't think I had words for. And as a a single foster mom, I I probably saw far less than I did with long-term placements because you get that honeymoon, the charming, the whatever. Right. But also it was just, you know, because these weren't necessarily long-term placements ever. I mean, I had a lot of kids, but I had them for short periods of time or you know, during court dates or family vacations that they couldn't leave the state or or things like that. They were really much more short term. So the issues I saw were never going to press buttons.
0: Right. They weren't there long enough.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had a kid for several weeks that never spoke to me, you know, just some of those things, but it was just, you could roll with it because it was was short term. It was short term and I didn't know what I didn't know. So I was, Maybe too dumb, naive, inexperienced—whatever word we want to label it—to to to really be rocked by a lot of that.
0: Well, I think, like you say, hopeful and naive, and just wanting to help and be there. Right, that was your role. And so, how long would the kids stay with you? What was what was an average for you? Just a couple of weeks,
1: or it varied from kid to kid. Sometimes it was the middle of the night placements where it was need to leave and go pick up a kid from the hospital. Off because it was just me and not, I didn't have a lot of other kids. To sometimes, I mean, probably the longest was probably close to a month because that kid was going back to her family. So it was often, I mean, they were very short term. So sometimes it was just, you know, three in the morning until the next morning when a relative had been located those were kind of my niche kids that kind of served that or as respite for other foster families that just needed that break that we all need when we're parenting deaf kids. Gotcha.
0: At 25, it sounds like you were interested in psychology, social work, sociology. Was that just something you'd always wanted to do? I mean, that's a young age and single to be doing that.
1: And actually in hindsight, looking at it, I I was actually probably younger than 25. I was probably 23 or 24 when I started because yeah, I was probably, yeah, I was probably younger. It, it was, I kind of always been interested in people's stories and, and what made them tick and saw my parents, my, my sibling that's adopted is older than me. So I didn't see them take anybody in because
0: you came later.
1: I came later and that, that journey was done and, and just for some safety reasons and things they needed to kind of not have other kids in their home, but it always intrigued me as part of their story. And I had a spare bedroom and, I actually, it was kind of in that time, it was, I was driving to something and I was like, you know, I just need a sign to do this. And there was one of those road signs that basically the detour blinking D, DOT yeah. sign right. that said, make a change, foster or adopt today. And I was like, okay, well, there it is. So I called <laughs> the Patrol, um, Child Protective Services in our community. And they had a class starting the next week. So I thought, well, why not? So I did my, oh ten my gosh. CPR and drug screen and all that stuff and got a placement, you know, within I think four hours of being wow. finalized. And it just, just rolled with it because I had a spare bedroom.
0: That's <laughs> right. That's hilarious. Well, and a sign doesn't get any clearer than that. I think that's right? hysterical.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: Oh my gosh. That's so funny. And then your, your parents adopted a child before you, was that child, uh, was it an, an infant adoption? Was it, it sounds like it wasn't.
1: It was, um, it depends on which parent you asked. My mom always said she was nine months old. My dad always said she was 10 or 11 months old. So who knows where oh, gotcha. the truth is probably somewhere in there. And similar to me, my mom, they got that child and my mom didn't know she was pregnant with my other sibling at the same time. So they got two kids in one year, the same way I did. Mine was so the like same
0: our, thing happened to them. That happened to you.
1: Everybody says that it always happens. You adopt and you get pregnant. And statistically, yeah. that is absolutely positively unequivocally not true. Right. But it did happen to both my mom and I, so we had our, our son came to us and we had him six months before we finalized. And that's when we found out we were pregnant. So we had, you know, we had him nearly a year before she came, but I had two kids in one year, just seven years apart, really.
0: That's unreal. This whole story is just crazy from the start. It is crazy.
1: My mom had always told me I have um, a daughter and I said, no, I think we're going to adopt a little boy. And and that's it. And my mom passed away. And then we had uh, certainly had that happen. So we had daughter my mom always I would
0: have so. so she is probably cracking up saying I told you so so there. did they um so they adopted and then how was that how long did they have their first child or your sibling and then you and how was that a positive experience because not every kid has rad that's what I have to remind myself and everybody is that just because you adopt, not every kid is going to come with reactive attachment disorder.
1: I think that, you know, I didn't know that that sibling was adopted until I was older because, I mean, you don't know that if the, I mean, cause my, my, I had a sibling five years older than me and six years older than me. And the six year older sibling is one that was adopted. Okay. And I, I can't say that it was rainbows and butterflies, but vastly different from our story. So there's, there's relationship issues. There's lying, cheating, stealing, but not. Do you think it was more like regular
0: kid stuff versus.
1: Probably regular kid with an asterisk.
0: Yeah. That's yeah.
1: In adulthood, whereas my one sibling kind of outgrew shenanigans. The other one kind of stays involved in shenanigans. Gotcha. Okay. So a little bit of difference, but, you know, there's that DNA that, you know, who knows what happened in utero those, you know, those first several months of being alive, where those were just critical to, to know who to trust and who not to. And then exactly. that was there. So there were certainly those behaviors, obviously not with that label because that label didn't come around so much later. Right. We're um, still
0: having a hard time with that yeah. label, right?
1: Yeah. And, and I don't think it was ever necessarily linked to adoption or Mm -hmm. that because, you know, everybody thinks if it's a baby, it's fine, which, you know, professionally we know is hogwash, but
0: we do know it's hogwash. Yes. So
1: I think, you know, looking back, I can certainly see those issues and professionally, I can certainly see those issues, but not my story, not my journey. So. Right.
0: Right. Interesting. So, So you fostered, you come from this adoptive family, uh, and then you meet your husband, get married, and what's the story behind you both wanting to adopt? Because you were telling me earlier that, you know, adoption was a big thing for you.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it was always something I knew that I wanted to do in life and felt, I guess from a faith perspective, felt called to do. So even as a teenager, I kind of always said I would have that then, you know, in the course of marriage, there were infertility issues that we weren't really going to go down a big road and not that there's anything wrong with people who do or that path, but that wasn't medically what we felt was in my best interest. And we knew that there were a lot of kids out there that obviously don't have homes, don't have families. We had a, a great family to offer. Was much more strong on my side than it was on my husband's because I'm really good at looking at the good side of things and he's really good at looking at all the things that could potentially go wrong. And so, more of the practical side of things, very practical, which right. is wonderful yet challenging sometimes. Right. So we we did we went through the classes and really had intended to just get an adoptive placement and. On a holiday weekend, it was a Memorial Day weekend. We had a call from a caseworker. They had to move two kids in an emergency base basis. It was a holiday weekend. A lot of people were out of town. They fit our criteria for what we want. So we had two boys for several, several months. And that was probably my first where I could, in my own home, see some reactive attachment disorder stuff was with one of those brothers. Wow.
0: And did you know it was reactive attachment, or did you just saw the behaviors and thought, "Oh, this isn't this?" Isn't I knew right. it
1: because at that point I had professionally gone down that road to learn. Not that it was taught necessarily in grad school, and I think that's what you know part of what I hope people understand is just because somebody's a therapist doesn't mean they got that basis of education. I mean, I have a master's degree from a top-rated university, and I remember going on an interview shortly after I graduated and and somebody said, well, tell me what you know about a reactive attachment disorder. And so I spewed out the probably five minute to 10 minute lecture that I had on it, which was clearly not enough. So I recognized after that interview that I didn't know what I didn't know. So I really... Kind of dug in deep and did a lot of, you know, all my continuing ads run developmental trauma, trauma,
0: mm-hmm.
1: reactive attachment disorder. Read a lot of books. Did yes. did the work that I felt like was really important to be a good therapist. So then, when it, these brothers were in our house, I could recognize it though that child didn't officially have that diagnosis. Right, um, right.
0: And isn't it interesting? I mean, this, this is your whole world from, I'm just, I'm just taking it all in Christine and just, you know, from the beginning to your work, to a family coming through adoption and, you know, your personal immediate family adoption is literally your world, but how interesting that you're in a profession that you recognize, Hey, I don't really know what this is. I need to know what this is and learned about it, educated yourself and now you're recognizing it and then it's going to it's going to come into your home on a personal level.
1: Right. So yeah. the those boys didn't we didn't end up adopting them for a variety of reasons and some of that was we weren't really what they needed. Right. The the older child was there were some safety issues that concerned us as far as us being safe in our own home. Okay. And there was a family that was a Truthfully, through the adoption agency we were working with, because we worked with a private agency that places children in state care, so okay. we ended up with a caseworker as well as children having a caseworker, and we yes. thought that was wise. So, yeah, they ended up being adopted by a family that was a good fit for them in many ways. And then we kind of we kind of paused and said, maybe this isn't for us. Maybe, maybe it's too much. Maybe it's too hard. And right. I guess. I would have to look back. Maybe a couple of years went by. Some other things happened. Whatever, and, and we just kind of revisited, called our caseworker, and kind of restarted everything.
0: I want to ask you what what were you thinking was yeah. so hard? So I didn't realize it had been years. So you took these kids in, you know, for respite, but potential, but that wasn't the right fit for you. They found a great family. Right. What there did, several months, several months. And so after that experience, what were you asking yourself? What were you feeling like? Oh gosh, you said this, this might be too hard. And then it's a couple of years before you revisit it. What's, what was going on there?
1: I'm not sure if it was necessarily that it was too hard, it was just, there was a lot of grief there because one brother left before the other one because of some safety things. And then there was the do they get adopted separately, which we were open to. The other family was open to, but the state wasn't open to. And right. there was just a lot of, I mean, hard may not be the right word, but there was a lot of sadness and grief, particularly mm-hmm. for the the one, both boys were thriving separately. So we, we thought it was best, but the state makes that decision, not, not us. Right. So, I'm glad
0: you bring that up because I often say in our family Uh, I I think that our kids were with a different family before us your story some parts are similar so if you see me smiling (laughs) I just can really relate on a personal level but I'm so glad you brought that up because that was the same situation with our kids and I really wish and and I think the families would have been open to a certain situation, or another family would have been open to separating the kids. They both would have done a whole lot better. But it's true, the state has just different limitations, Mm -hmm. and
1: and it's too bad sometimes. It is, and it's it wasn't. I mean, it was hard because you know it's hard to know whether that was me having kind of some relationship, but the younger child had some attachment issues but really when the older child was removed really began thriving yes we would go from you know five to ten calls from the school a week to maybe one to two and Uh, we went from a lot of wedding to then not wedding and you know there was some so there wasn't it was a lot of grief. And then, yeah. you know, on, on the other side of life, you know, my mom had become sick. And so I was helping to take care of her and, uh, you know, just not really knowing. It. And and so kind of all of that kind of coming to.
0: That's a lot.
1: So yeah, he got, he came to us in, in January, actually January of 16. And then we finalized that summer and then uh, my other child was born in 17. So okay. there's the, it was probably maybe a year to year and a half between those placements, but okay. also you know some dealing with other family stuff and and just a lot of grief in that time and just knowing grief. and having to soul search and we you know I, I hear a lot of people and reading a lot of books about how you know you have to make sure that your stuff's okay as a parent and it's always, it always makes me second guess. Did we do the right things? But we, you know, we went to therapists to make sure our marriage was solid. We went to therapists individually to work on past issues that might impact our parenting of any child that was in our home. and So we felt like we had done that well. Well,
0: and you know, here's the thing too, is most people don't go to those extremes, right? Most typical people get married, have their kids for adoptive parents there's that light we shine on ourselves and the whole situation is a lot brighter and i think that opens it up for then a lot of self judgment we're already judging by shining that light on and then judging ourselves constantly mm-hmm. while we go through that which i think a lot of people to that extreme, don't don't experience it.
1: No, I mean I did natural child labor with no pain medication for 19 hours. Whoa. And getting my <laughs> son to us, getting our, you know, our 12 year old to us was far more difficult than that. Right. And like I my our pediatrician laughs because I like when we when you go from the month visits when they're infants to like six months and then a year, I didn't know what to do because nobody was checking in with me once or twice a month because every child I'd ever had, there was people checking in all the time.
0: Right. You had Um, the
1: support group and I didn't know how to parent a child who didn't have those early childhood traumas.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Your normal was opposite. And I just have to revisit that point that it was 19 hours of labor was easier than bringing in your adopted son.
1: For sure. Whoa. For sure. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So you're pregnant and you have this newly adopted son. Did it feel right at the beginning? Did, did you see any signs or was it just the typical, this is
1: exciting? No. Um, you know, he was with us from January And then in July is when we finalized August was when I was found out I was pregnant, but because of my history, we didn't tell a soul. So nobody, but my doctor, pharmacist, and husband knew that I was pregnant until late October. Gotcha. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of very well-meaning people, professionals, you know, want to say that our son has issues because he feels jealous of a sibling. Hmm. I'm sure he does. But we cried the night before finalization, not knowing if it was the right thing to do because we were scared of this child.
0: Oh, wow. Scared of your adopted child? Yes.
1: So oh, we didn't, wow. you know, it, these weren't issues that came because no. of another child in the home. These were issues that very early of him being in our home, right. we were scared. And people look at you like you're crazy because you're scared of a six-year-old.
0: Talk about that. What do you want people to
1: know? That yes, all kids cuss. Yes, all kids are defiant. But kids with rad have a different exponent put on that. Well said. That my, my I don't even want to say that, you know, my, my biological child, because they're both my children, but my biological child gets mad at me, but doesn't try to kill me. Mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And we have a, we had a six, I mean, he was six when he came to us and was very, very perfect when he came to us to the point that I was asking caseworkers because it was odd and confusing and kind of scary because mm-hmm. six-year-olds don't often say, I am feeling frustrated. Perhaps I should go to my room and use some tools. Right. They
0: don't, they don't do that. That's just weird. Yeah, right. That seems a little weird.
1: Yeah, and there were there were a lot of things early on, like the staffing before we even met him, a caseworker asked us, so what, what will you do if these temper tantrums he sometimes has in his foster home, what will you do if he sometimes gets violent? And I thought that's a weird question red flag. We'll love him. We'll do the things that families do, but is he violent? Oh no, no, no. We just want to know. But then our son told us later that his foster mom patched holes in walls before we came for the first visit. So really, we didn't see
0: them. really his
1: adoption subsidy wasn't the base rate package. And we asked why, because if you're telling us that this is a healthy boy with minimal issues doing well in school and adjusting well why is he qualifying for a higher package and the answer was that he just had a good caseworker but you
0: were asking all the right questions you just weren't getting matching answers
1: yeah you know we we got all the medical records we read through every therapy note we 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 did all of that and then we end up with a perfect quote-unquote perfect kid caseworkers were telling us Uh, just to enjoy being a parent that we had worked long and hard and just enjoy it but it didn't feel right yeah before we finalized we actually did a week-long attachment and bonding camp just to be proactive because great we've got kid, but let's try to do the the next best thing. And, and how and, did you know about
0: that camp? Was that something offered in your area?
1: No, it was actually out of state. It was because professionally I had done my deep dive and investigated. Yes. I mean, professionally, because I was seeing issues that even in adults that, you know, we needed to talk about, Hey, this this could stem from X, Y, and Z from your childhood. And let's, let's look at that. And, Mm. and just really intrigued by it professionally. And, and because I knew that we would be adopting and that these could be issues. And so no, nobody had told us about it. We just sought it out because it was good. So we took, you know, the time off and went and that was the week that we saw our first rage episode was at that event. And it was scary. I mean, there was language used that, I hope that children shouldn't know. And right. a, a lot of just scary things and throwing things and violin. And it, this is this kind of smaller size, six-year-old, you know, that is yeah. just different eyes. And so we did this and then we came back with all these wonderful tools that we'll use and things just progressively got worse and worse. And
0: so um, let me ask you, Christine, uh, so your child was six, six and a half. He was living with a different family. So when was he removed from his home? How long was he with that family? And what kind of connection or information were you able to have with that family? You know, were you able to get information? Were you able to chit chat about stuff? Did they try?
1: What what was that piece? It's great questions because he was removed from his biological mom, um, just a a little bit after his fourth birthday.
0: Okay. So he was with bio mom for four years. Mm -hmm. Bio mom. And then
1: there was an almost adult half brother that lived there. Oh, Um, and just a lot of chaos and and just chaos, I think is, is the easiest way to describe that environment. And then he was he says the state says he, this was his only foster home. He says he had a night or two with another foster family and it's so consistent that that's probably true. Okay. Um, and then was placed with this and it was an, an older woman who, who, whose spouse did, did, um, like long haul trucking. So she was kind of retired and, and did that. There was one other foster child in that home that was, um, medically not there was no relationship because she medically was just in a persistent vegetative state and, and so, so she we have a. we still communicate with his former foster mom she's still a part of conversations I don't think we do wow. visits really just a geographical issue versus sure that but we still communicate fairly regularly and I think that the hope that he was her first foster child ever so I don't think she knew what she didn't know yeah And I think she had the belief that we all want to have, but I think those of us doing this know is not true (laughs) that love is not enough.
0: Oh, I was just gonna that would have been my guess. Yeah, if I just love him. She she believed and and he does,
1: I mean, nobody's all bad or all good all the time. Mm -hmm. So he does have some very sweet qualities. Sure. And I think she believed that with a good, healthy family of parents of parent age that could get out and ride the bikes and go camping and go, which she couldn't couldn't do she was older I think she thought he would get better so those things the behaviors that were there were weren't shared no I don't think that was malicious on her part Mm -hmm. I think it was hopeful that he was young enough that these were good quote-unquote good adoptive parents I mean we're we're not perfect but we're pretty Decent. Sure.
0: He's going to a good home with people that love and care for him. They're going to be able to give him the things I can't. That's all he needs.
1: Yeah. And his mom's a therapist. You couldn't yeah. ask for better. Right.
0: Not at all. Not at all.
1: We didn't really know how bad it had been in that home for probably a year into it when really just our son started telling us more than anything. And, really? And her it's just been, well, I just kind of hoped he would grow out of it.
0: Her husband said that.
1: Uh, she said that as she a foster mom to us, we, we really, yeah, we never really talked to the, the foster dad there. Cause he wasn't really involved much, okay. but we just didn't know. And I think that part of the, the struggle is, I think he had attached, it was a second loss for him. He was there two and a half years mm-hmm. with her and it wasn't family how we wanted to offer family it was very good quality basic care for him gotcha. he ate well he had great medical care because he had to get caught up on some things because you know he never brushed his teeth in, in his life until he came to foster care and never he didn't have any immunizations after what you get at the hospital right. there was no, there was none of, of those things that had been done so so she did a fabulous job with those things and and I really do believe she loved him. Yes. But it was only as much as what he could tolerate. Sure. So there was a lot of time I think he's I think I mean, I'm speculating that I think he just spent in his room. There, there were some things his, you know, his teacher at the school loved him and but we also heard later because our kid tells us, you know, that he'd get in trouble for throwing things or Mm. but there's things we didn't, we didn't know because everybody wanted it to be the fairy tale story that perhaps we also wanted on some level.
0: And so what kind of things were happening? If you're comfortable talking about it, what, what, what did you find out was happening in that previous foster home?
1: A lot of it was what we continued to see. Um, we, we just call them kind of rage episodes where he can get mad and, and scream for hours and bang on things. I mean, it's kind of his go-to where it's, I mean, it, it's loud. He knows how to make the loudest of noises and punching and some holes in walls and screaming for hours on end with really, I mean, you know, you do acute hospitalizations and they're like, what's the trigger? Well, there could be no trigger. I mean, right. this is a, We took him to the beach for the first time so he could see the ocean. And I woke up in a hotel room with his hands around my throat trying to choke me. Are you kidding? So, you know, when we say what's the trigger, we had this fabulous time. He got to raise the flag at the fort. and The good times are the the trigger. Good time because he couldn't regulate any emotion. Mm
0: -hmm. The good
1: times are the trigger. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it was... Those things and, and how that was worded to us was just, he would have some tantrums.
0: Mm. Downplayed so, a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, so that's kind of how it started And in and, and, and our home, like at six and that time it was kind of these just almost out of the blue, just rage episodes. Yeah. It could be four in the morning. It could be four in the afternoon. It could wow. Be so
0: you didn't and even it, know when to expect it. It could happen at any time. So you're sleeping and these things happen. How frightening is that?
1: absolutely and so you know we went to at that point we went to alarms on doors because that was the easiest so that we could sleep and not worry you know with previous experiences we you know we did tantrums on tuesdays regardless whether you needed it or not you were gonna have a tantrum so we you know kind of prescribed the problem and and that would work for other kids but it didn't seem to work for him on that you know we had at, at that point after attached the attachment camp we had you know, we did some neurofeedback because yes. he knew what to say in therapy. He was very good at therapy. You know, the yep. therapists would tell us how awesome he was and how he understood adoption issues. And it was a great therapist for a kid that didn't have rad, but so we, we went to a more specific, did neurofeedback, but things continued to get worse. Did they even after neurofeedback? Hey? Yeah. In the midst of it. So that professional kind of said, you know at this point I guess by the time we were with him fully in and doing some of that and doing some MDR and mm-hmm. some very specific work with him and you know driving an hour and a half twice each way twice a week and and doing this and then we had a newborn in the house at that point Gosh, right so all these violent things that had been going on
0: now you're at a new level
1: it was because our home became more vulnerable Mm-hmm. And so at that point we were trying to use some in-home services and that led to because our kid wouldn't sign safety contracts. so that led to in the state we're in that's a 1013. so it's an involuntary commitment right. So then we started this cycle of kind of acute hospitalizations and then back to back on those and then residential psychiatric facilities. And then we pulled the plug on that and went to like a wilderness-based program, which we saw great progress in. Did you? In some capacities, Mm. but also in the midst of that, as things were seemingly getting better.
0: Hi, listeners. I am so excited to tell you that there is a conference happening this summer for us, for you, rad parents. It's called Navigating Rad 2021, and it's being hosted by Rad Advocates. The conference is going to take place August 20th to 21st in Denver, Colorado. Registration is open. So hop on the website, radadvocates.org, sign up for the conference, and check out their amazing lineup of who's going to be there, including other parents just like you. Start making your travel plans to Denver the weekend of August 20th to 21st. I hope to see you there.
1: You know, it was Thanksgiving and he stole a knife and hit it and we knew it was missing. And At this point, we had upgraded because he would say he was going to make false allegations. And we were terrified of that because both my husband and I's job work with children. So that oh would be our gosh
0: as well. That would crush you. Yeah.
1: Put cameras throughout everywhere so that we mm-hmm. could go back on any, if he did make a false allegation, which he hasn't, but he always threatened to, cause he, I guess, I don't know. He knew that that would be it, not okay. Right. So he would sit and punch himself and bruise his face up and say, he was going to go to school and tell the teacher that we did that to him. Wow. Or he would say that he was going to tell her that we weren't feeding her. So then we're having to mm-hmm. take every meal that we do just, mm-hmm. I mean, this kind of constant living in fear. And, and I kind of equate it to, you know, looking back, my husband and I were talking this morning about an experience where the police had been at our house and they, because he was threatening to hurt himself, they suggested that he go to a, be evaluated at a hospital, mm-hmm. offered to transport him. And I, I was like, no, I'll do it. And thinking back that how unsafe that was, yeah. Attacked while I was driving an hour to this right. facility,
0: and the sooner that you can get people involved and and with your kids, that's just something to point out. We didn't do it soon enough either. Our daughter would run away. We didn't report it until the third time because we didn't know to. But I am mm-hmm. always pointing out that the minute people step in and get involved and want to help or take them, do that. Yes. <laughs> right?
1: do yeah, do it. <laughs> you know, at this point, he's. I mean, I guess at that age, he was seven or eight. He's little. Yeah. Like on a, you know, rescue medicine that was supposed to sedate him, had attacked Uh, the cop and the security guard at the facility. But then he was attacking me while I was driving, which was so stupid that I did that. I shouldn't have done that. And uh, we, we didn't, uh, looking back, we can see how crazy some of our life had gotten. It's like the frog in the pot. They don't know they're being, if you turn this Temperature up slowly. They don't know that they're going to boil to death. Exactly. Put them in hot water. Like if anybody jumped in our life in the middle of this, they would have jumped out really quick. But you know, it was a ten-minute rage episode. Then it was a fifteen-minute rage episode.
0: Then a four-hour build into what it turns into. It is so slow and subtle, you don't even know what's happening. That's such a great analogy that you just gave.
1: We just, we, you know, we didn't know and we're, yeah. we're trying to do the best. And, and so this this Thanksgiving from this, you know, he was in this wilderness program, but home, you know, every couple of weeks there was home time and we were seeing progress and things were good. And I, and I remember the visit before that, he had fallen outside and scraped Disney and he came to me. Wow. And I was like, wow, he's going to let me help with the, the big things, I yeah. mean, the little things, because it was always, I mean, this a kid that, you know, I mean, he stood up under the playground and he coated in blood one day at school and it was just no big deal to him. But if yeah. he had a nail, I was the worst mom because I wasn't doing something for him and yeah. just that me but he fell and he came to me and I was like, oh, we're making progress. We're doing well. And this is huge. Day, yeah. He took a knife and denied it, but we had it on camera. And so, you know, we went back to, to the, The wilderness program and we just kind of let them handle it and they called us a few days later and wanted us to come and listen to him confess and he's laughing telling the story of how he took the knife because he needed us to be afraid of him he needed you to be afraid of him and he's laughing and it's uncomfortable because at this point I think it's you know sisters too and yeah I don't know what to do with that and so then he kind of, he graduates that that program, but with them really saying, we've kind of taken him as far as we can. It's not where we want him, but we've done what we can do.
0: Right. He's kind of maxed out here.
1: Yeah. And we understood that. And we thought that, I mean, we had paid an educational advocate to look at, and we had this phenomenal IEP written and all these services in place and some really cool things, treatment set up and he graduated the day before the world shut down. So he came home with this phenomenal service that, you know, we paid essentially a kidney to get this great service set up.
0: And talk about what were the services that were going to be, what made it so great? What was going to happen? What was that ideal for you?
1: Well, we just had our our school, we're in a small town. And so our school system some isn't doesn't have a whole lot of like we don't have the emotional behavior disturbed classroom in our in our school district so they always farm that out to a regional psychoed school which he had been in before we didn't want to do that again because we had made some progress like this was a kid that wasn't cussing at us as as much and you know, so we didn't want to put him back in where the the environment was toxic So he was going to be allowed to go back to a regular ed school for the first time in several years, but with like constant supervision, like he wasn't going to be allowed to walk down the halls alone and really, um, he was going to be pulled. And I'd met this special ed teacher that it was going to be a small group. And even though it wasn't EBD, she had some experience in her own life. Like she had called me later and um, she had some experience in her own life with a stepchild that had some attachment issues. And so she was, she understood, she got it. Mm -hmm. They allowed me to write my resource list of what I wanted him to do, which include a lot of the, you know, brain gym stuff and the the neuropathway and just all the, all the things,
0: all the Um, rehab things. Yeah. I
1: had all the things that were, were going to be great. And and so he was going to be able to finish that school year there. Then the world broke. Jeez. So he went from only having to see us every four to six weeks to seeing us. 100% of the time. So back home
0: with you. And how old is he now at that point?
1: At that that point, he was um, 10, about to be 11. So it was right before he turned 11. So this was essentially like last spring. So right, you know, right when everything, was March of 2020, so he's 10 coming home.
0: And this is a kid just to remind people, like just to remind people about, because sometimes we, we overlook a lot of stuff. So in this, as a as a mom, you're trying to love the kid and always see the best. And you're also seeing the behaviors and dealing with how it's taxing you. There's that double whammy of um, having compassion for the child or your child, but at the same time, living through experiences where you have alarms on doors, cameras in your home, because it's that dangerous. And I'm sure you still did not sleep well, despite even having all those implements in your home. Right.
1: And, and we like kind of adding to that we had our, our home, and this doesn't make sense unless people know our home, but he, he had a bedroom that was really large because it was built. The home was built for a child that was in a wheelchair. Oh, So okay. that room was actually big much bigger and so even at during that time we actually even and it almost sounds as if like we were trying to cage him but it wasn't we were trying to provide this safe space for him we actually added an additional wall to help with the sound barrier because keep in mind we also had a small child Yes. That he would say hey is is sibling taking a nap and and we'd say yes and and then suddenly this Rage episode came on. So there was a lot of calculated trying to sabotage yes. another human that needed sleep, needed, right. needed whatever.
0: I was just gonna say back to that exponential. Little piece that you added a while back. That's the piece of it. I think that it's calculated. There's an agenda. It's not, I'm going to yeah. see if I can get away with this. Oh, I didn't. I might try it again. Oh, I start to learn from that experience. This is exactly what you're saying is it doesn't stop. It's calculated. It's manipulative. There's an agenda and it's, it's that learning piece is gone.
1: Yeah. It's, it's on it, a yeah,
0: different level. It's
1: not, yeah. There's not an ability to learn from no. that. It's no. It's the you know the standard bedroom doors. This is a kid that at seven was able to come through because we did have a reverse block on there under the guidance of a therapist for him to have a safe place to have his rages. Right. Nothing in there to choke himself, nothing in there to hurt himself though. Wow, the ability of creativity to find those things and sure. create those things is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So even when we thought, I mean, even as a licensed therapist, I would say this room is safe then suddenly you realize it's not that he was able to come through that door with only his fists, kind of like the, the Kool-Aid man comes through, busting right. through. And I'm home alone at this point with him and the other child. And I have her outside to shield from all the violence.
0: And he came through the
1: door like that? Came through the door and said, I can get out now, mommy, what are you going to do? In this voice that are the things that my nightmares are. And I have an infant at this time. And so at that point, we then had to engage never a one parent, two child situation, which we work, we're involved in our community. I was going to say, how do you do that? You you don't easily, Mm. but we, my husband changed jobs so that that could happen. Yeah. It just, I mean, it's taking two cars to places it's it's sitting you know one one parent driving and the other parent sitting in the back seat behind because both kids are of the age but they have to be in the back seat so right it, it's those things so it is it's that exponential it's it's different so then we start to have to live that way in the midst of all of this we reached out to DFACS and said please help because we're worried about the safety of our younger child and so they investigate us which was hard because we're this good wholesome family right and basically said nothing has happened physically to the younger child so there's nothing they can offer but this was a kid you know at this point fast forward after wilderness program at that time he's telling us how he wants to kill me and that child in great detail and is afraid he's going to because he doesn't want to go to prison not because there's death but he doesn't want to go to prison so he doesn't want to do it but he's afraid he can't stop himself. Oh my gosh. So we make it a few months after using in home whatever's in the midst of a pandemic.
0: What do you do with that? Sorry. We just moved on from that. What what do you do with that? That's the piece of I mean, anybody listening, right listeners, I know you're out there thinking the same thing as whoa, what, what does that do to you? I mean, I think we know what that would do to us, right. But what does that do to you? And then you still have to live with this child in your home. What, what, what do you do? How do you handle that?
1: Well, in the moment I channel every therapeutic parenting resource I have and thank him for being honest. Mm -hmm. And talk about the bravery and courage it has to tell the truth and thank him for all of that and ask other questions, but also knowing that we have cameras rolling in our house all the time. So this is being recorded. Mm -hmm. You know, I do the, the therapist version of myself of getting all the details. And once he expressed not being able to stop, if he started, we contacted a psychiatrist the next day and he ended up back in the hospital but okay. what I do is have mares and feel crazy and the other child though not physically ever impacted that we know of she says he's thrown things at her and, and that's true but she would have been too young to remember so I don't know how she knows that but she mm-hmm. does because we don't tell her hmm but was afraid. She was having nightmares. She was afraid of him and able to articulate that starting at like two years old. She was able to be afraid. Um, he was having some other symptoms of like walking on her toes, which we kind of just thought, well, kids walk on their toes, but then we had a physical therapist that didn't know anything about our family say, is there anything stressful in your home?
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe,
1: Yeah. 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 So at that point, that was this time last summer. He again got hospitalized for all the homicidal thoughts, but we live in a state that is very attachment uninformed Mm -hmm. and we just do pills and Mm -hmm. hospitals, which for attachment issues, the staff change every three days and every 12 hours. So Mike can be very good at a facility. Yes he's fun, he's enjoyable, he's charming, he's Right, there's
0: nobody to attach to because every couple of days it's someone new.
1: Yes. Yes. So we at that point while he was in this facility and really knowing how much he's getting bigger, stronger, wiser and while there's a great depth of every fiber of my being loving him, Mm -hmm. I worked with a therapist at that time who who articulated to me, because again, you know, everybody's saying, do your own work. What buttons is he mm-hmm. pressing of yours? And I'm like, I've done all that work, like multiple times. Thank you. yeah Did my work while being a therapist. I went to therapy yeah. because I didn't want to be a therapist who would not been to therapy. And
0: Right. This isn't about me. This isn't about him. This is a village. This takes a team. Yeah.
1: This is yeah, it's this so much. not and just one. Right. And it's, it's the life of another child. Mm-hmm. Not that there's a difference in love. It's just, it's a vulnerable human who's mm-hmm. my responsibility to protect. Right. And, and despite all of
0: this, you're still
1: loving him. Despite
0: yes. everything that you've been through, right?
1: Which is crazy
0: as if it were my husband doing
1: the things. I mean, I guess I fast forwarded through a lot, but this is while pregnant, punching a knee in the stomach, while pregnant, dislocating my knee and I didn't even drink coffee while I was pregnant. So I couldn't take anything to help with that pain. Right. So much. I mean, the police reports that I recently went back and read, you know, it shows bite marks on me. It shows bruises on me. It shows blood on my back where he pushed me into a corner on a wall that split the skin on my back. There's, there's all of these things. And if that was my husband, everybody would think I was crazy for staying, but when it's your child, it's but he's so cute. They're vulnerable. So this is a kid that at church can sit beautifully and listen and attentive and do Mm -hmm. all of the things and shake all the hands and do all of the the very charming things and get in the Mm -hmm. car and say, you're an effing maniac. I can't, I I don't even know why you go to this church or, you know, just good things that aren't congruent. Nobody sees that. So they see, you know, he needs a stamp collection or he needs to play a sport or, well, we signed him up for sports and he ended up in the hospital every time before he got to play. And we, you know, we, we buy the collection and he buries it in the backyard or destroys it or.
0: We do all the things. I say that every time and every family and parent that I talk to, we do all the things. And I think, well, that is a good point too, is that you, yeah, it's different in the sense that it still is a vulnerable child but it doesn't mean that that's acceptable or tolerable even, you know, you're a therapist. We have these backgrounds in healthcare and an understanding and look at, and you did all the things. I did all the things and we had knowledge and still right? If an entire system cannot care for the child as vulnerable as they are, yes, that's there. They still need help. They still have behaviors. They are still Mm -hmm. dangerous. They are still a safety issue. And that's where it doesn't matter one person. And no matter how hard you work on your triggers, girl, that is not the answer, Right. right? That's a piece of it, but it takes this huge village to manage that kid so we can have compassion we can see the vulnerability but that doesn't mean that you just send them back home and again that's like saying love them more do more work on yourself more bs and that's
1: a great point because at that point we did two things i talked to a, a fabulous therapist who appeared in our life for a short period of time and i can't find her again so i don't know what happened to oh, her maybe shoot. maybe it's this imaginary thing that happened but I don't think it is because I've checked myself and that's not it <laughs> right. but she said to me in the midst of this mm. your child can't come home because it's it's too much for him to tolerate yeah you are too much yep. for him and not in a, not in a bad way she didn't say that no but she said to me it's like taking a combat veteran with PTSD and sending him in a war zone and help hoping that he heals in the midst of battle yeah that family was such a trigger for him that it was too much for him to tolerate. And that was a good turning point for me mm-hmm. to then begin looking at longer-term options. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to RAD advocates, which I know you know and endorse. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they suggested um Tupelo Children's Mansion. And so while he was in the hospital, we applied to several places, but that was one that we felt the best about because it would be stable and caregiving, which we thought he could tolerate because he does, he did well in facilities mostly. I mean, he had, there were episodes, but they weren't as frequent as they were at home. Right.
0: And can I just go back one point, because something that you said, that was a very pivotal moment for you, I think. And I think it is for a lot of us. And that moment where whatever somebody said to you, but you were able to give yourself that permission to let go and that, that recognition that, and this is what I always say is we often are trying to control something that we can't control and we keep trying and keep trying and whatever that magic, whether it's just listening to this podcast or hearing me say it, you have the permission home is the trigger, those good times you were talking about that therapist asking you, what are the triggers while well, we're going to the beach? We're doing all these fun things. It's the good times. It's the happy Those are the triggers and that happens all in a loving, connected home. And so, but we still keep trying to control it. I mean, listen back to this interview about all the things, not just you, but every rad parent does. And I know listeners, you're relating to this too. You've done all the things, but it's finally allowing yourself that permission and understanding and it's different for everyone, but that allows you to move forward with that, right?
1: it is. I think it's permission and gr- allowing yourself to grieve the picture yes. that you wanted. Yes. I had this picture and I still to, a, at this point, much smaller degree, had this picture of this 25 to 30 year old kid telling his story mm. or him bringing someone home whom he's fallen in love with and right. us kind of laughing at the, the craziness that he came from from and look where he's at now the
0: success story
1: yeah that story that you know look at where I came from and look who stood behind me Mm -hmm. and maybe that's arrogant I don't know but my husband always has a phrase that he throws out when I'm in that cycle of I should have done this or I should have done this or could have tried this or what about this and he's he's a he's a sports guy so he says you can play a perfect game and still lose yes and that, that mattered. So I had that moment of, I can still be his mom, mm-hmm. but in a different way, in a different picture, in a different light. And he called me mom for a while. He doesn't now, No. but we're okay with, I mean, I've always been okay with, you can call me anything as long as it's respectful, right. Or probably place than some of the things he's called me, yeah, which right. nobody else in the planet has ever called me. Hmm. yeah. Um, So we, it it became okay then to look at that Mm -hmm. because in that time he got discharged from the hospital this past December, not because he was better, but because he knew what to say and he wanted to have Christmas at home instead of Christmas in a hospital because he didn't know what Christmas in the hospital was. Right. Right. So when I picked him up from the hospital, he said, I still want to kill you, Mm. but I'd rather be at home. And I don't know what to do with that because I should have just turned around, but I, yeah. we also had applied for all these, we were still hoping for kind of a long-term facility, but in that window of time of him being back from the hospital, this is a kid that took his t-shirt off and ripped it into, to strips. He had been asked to pick up 10 pine cones as a consequence for something Mm -hmm. and he ripped his shirt into strips and shackled himself because he was afraid he was going to attack the other child and he wanted to prevent that. So on a strengths perspective, we can say, gosh, at least he put a barrier to do, Mm -hmm. but the torture that I know he has to be going through to have to live in an environment where you're thinking about killing so frequently had to be torture on him. So it almost felt like a gift that we could give him.
0: Yeah, I like that. And it really is changing your mindset and becoming that support person rather than hanging on to those dreams, whether it's the dream of the perfect family or the dream of one day he's going to figure this out and we'll have that success story. And hope is eternal, right? Hope is the hardest. Emotion, because it's so strong, I think we'll always have that and it's not a bad thing, but shifting your perspective, letting go of those expectations so that you can shift your entire family Because when we're controlling, we think that we are doing the greatest things because, again, some part of us is, I think, still holding out for pieces of that neurotypical experience for parenting and for our family, right? But the thing is, is just like we have to parent differently, you have to shift your mindset so that your family might look different, you might just be the support person, and it's not easy letting go of that. But once you do, I think your family shifts and everybody is better for it.
1: It is. I mean, we we went through, I mean, our, our youngest child had for the times that he was home, every night was ending up in our, our floor sleeping. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is just normal two, three-year-old behavior. This happens. I'm sure this is normal. Didn't really even. think about it and once he fast forward he got accepted to Tupelo and that very night she slept in her bed all night really and hasn't slept in our room since then safety and you know we thought I thought I was doing a really good job of shielding her from the impact of this chaos this this disorder in our world but she's freakishly empathetic and observant and soaks mm-hmm. it all in and can very much articulate the fear that she has of her brother. And that's not my words because we right. don't talk about it. No. And, and just looking at the dynamics of our marriage and how we had just become managers of a family and managers of a disorder and a lockdown facility versus this fun, loving, silly family.
0: You put that so well, I, because I often have a hard time framing that. So I appreciate what you said about becoming managers rather than, not that parents don't have a little bit of management skill, sure. but you're managing situations and people, you're not really living as a connected, loving, happy family. That's really well said as we were
1: having to for a period of time when there was he he had such fear of attacking her at dinner even that we were having to feed children separately or work later and I would bring him to my office to mm-hmm. where you know my husband could put the other child to bed and then so that there would be this less interaction so we weren't even connected we were working to keep mm-hmm. a, a- safety safety was the key right Even in that height of that pandemic time, we continued to send our other child to daycare for her safety. Right. We were choosing to expose her to a global pandemic. Because that was safer than exposing her to her brother. Right.
0: And that's a theme here, right? Sending her out into the global pandemic to keep her safe. It was easier having uh, going through a 19 hour difficult labor than it was to take in a child, your child from adoption. I mean, and then your whole life and your husband changed his jobs, you're checking out every avenue from IEPs to therapy to rehab possibilities to schools to programs to then living in a house with alarms and uh, cameras and worrying about your own safety. So now let's talk a bit because I know we're running out of time and I've kept you so long, but your story is so valuable and so interesting. So talk about Tupelo because part of your story is that you are still in this it's not like it's all over for you and you just hit a crisis point we talked what was it a couple of weeks ago and bam girl so what's happening
1: so my child went to Tupelo in January they had some staffing changes he kind of made the cut and got to stay so first
0: of all what is Tupelo for people that don't know
1: Tupelo is a kind of residential type boarding school where the children many of whom have reactive attachment disorder can thrive and we've we've known other families that have had kids there that thrive because there's not a inherent demand for attachment there's care there's concern I would even say there's love Mm -hmm. and there's consistency but there's not a it's not family. So a lot of kids tend to thrive there. And our hope was that our childhood. Um, and they do school on campus. It's a small private school. That the teachers were pretty awesome. It's, you call, you, you can have visit phone visits, visits in person. Um, it, it's in Tupelo, Mississippi, the birthplace of Elvis, if people need it. Oh, nice. a, a reason to go there, I don't know. They've been around for, I don't know how many years, but a, a long time, they have a, a long history they had some struggles with staffing and w- with COVID as well. So there was, there was some time there that was kind of rough on that. Right. They, they let, you know, certain behaviors, but others they just kind of handle cause they're used to it. You know, these are, these are people that are well-versed with rad and, mm-hmm. and a lot of kids really do thrive there because of that and the type of environment it is. So we had started getting some calls about some behaviors that were, bothersome, but not on their list of if they kick you out for. Yeah. And so I talked to the therapist that was working with them and I said, you know, February, March, do we need to be concerned? Well, no, we see them tolerate a lot of these things, but by May they called and there were behaviors that they couldn't tolerate in part because they were down on some staff, but in part, they were beginning to see some of the calculatedness that scared us. Mm-hmm. So he had choked some younger children. He had decapitated stuffed animals, some plumbing things, some behaviors that were set up to get other children in trouble. But eventually it would come out that he would be behind it. Very, very calculating. And they gave us a couple of weeks to find him another place to go. Mm -hmm. But once your child hurts younger children at a facility, facility, it's very, 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 very difficult to find another place. And home was not an option.
0: No. Did you find that getting into Tupelo, you were even worried if he'd qualify before he got into there? Because with, with a lot of kids, including yours, those behaviors often don't get you in anywhere even. So Tupelo must've felt like, Oh, what a relief there's somewhere. Yes, very much.
1: We were relieved in a lot of ways. One, because it gave our family some time, some additional ways to heal, which we had at the wilderness program, but then we kind of quickly got back into a very toxic place. Right. And we had done some healing, had some hope, did all of the things that, you know, we were, we were told to do do as far as have hope, project hope, send positive Mm -hmm. messages. And, and we just, we didn't get to stay in that place very long, unfortunately. So there was relief for us, but there was also relief that maybe, maybe my kid can find some traction. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Maybe my kid can have some consistency that he could tolerate. Right. It's enough for him to see me every couple months. It's enough for him to know that I'm paying the bill and sending the letters and and doing that. That was, that was what he could tolerate with me being a parent. to him. Mm -hmm. And that was okay, but it was, it was, yes, that relief for us, but also relief that this was going to be good for him. And when we told him he was ecstatic, he was happy, he was really eager to go and eager to know that at that point that he would still be our son, but he wouldn't have to live with us, um, which doesn't make sense in any circle other than Rad's well,
0: Isn't that the truth? But it does make sense so everything's good. And then you get this call saying, "Mm -mm,
1: can't do it. Can't
0: do it. And
1: I, we have chosen another place. He is at that other place for a few weeks now. And I don't, I don't know what to really say about that. I mean, when he was told he was leaving Tupelo, it was of course my fault I could get him to say it was the staff's fault. There was obviously not a whole lot of ownership. None. Uh, uh, I did get to talk to him yesterday and he owned some of that, not a whole lot, Um, but that we ended up having to pay transport because we also got diagnosed with COVID during that time, post vaccines, post safety and whatever statistical anomaly that is in our world will whatever apparently
0: that's a theme you know with your mom and you getting pregnant after adoption and now you get COVID after getting the vaccine
1: yes it's insane but so I couldn't our plan was then to pick him up through this and through working to get his subsidy raised because also yeah these aren't cheap options and you know Tupelo financially was within our reach Mm -hmm. but no other place is and so currently paying more than I make per month for a facility but it is what it is (laughs) but I I couldn't afford him so the transporter called and asked if I could get him calmed down and that was probably the most regulated I've been in a long time perhaps because I was pretty sick but Mm -hmm. I was able to hear all the disorder saying all the hateful things Mm -hmm. and I would say not any of me took it personally yeah. because he knew that this was, this is a kid that's been able to control his world because he's needed to because yeah. of this sickness. Yeah. And suddenly he couldn't control it. This was a decision that was made. You know, he, he had chosen Tupelo. He would choose when to leave hospitals because he'd be tired of being there. He chose mm-hmm. when to go to hospitals because he knew what to say to get involuntarily committed. He chose if he wanted to stay in a classroom or go to the principal's office or get suspended or he was able to control so much. So I knew that at this moment it was he wasn't in control and he didn't know what to do with that. And it made some big feelings and he was Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and he was going to say what he could to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And he begged me to put him in foster care. And I said, I've got covid. I can't even go to the courthouse today. So just pretend this is foster care and get in the car. You're going with a stranger. To a house you don't know, that's exactly what foster care is. So if you need to pretend, pretend, which may or may not be an A-plus parenting move, but it got him in the car to go across the country to get where he needed to be.
0: Can I just say as a RAD parent, I think we get an automatic A-plus for parenting.
1: (laughs) It doesn't always feel that way at the end of the day when you evaluate yourself, but I- Try really hard to remember that I've done the best job I could with yes. what I had when I had it yeah and the folks you know your world gets smaller as a rad parent because people don't get it and they want to just kind of say well all kids yeah do, all kids steal yeah. okay but not all kids steal a knife and plan to kill you
0: and keep doing it. Right. We go back to that point about it doesn't end for us. It's not a phase. It's not a, like, Oh, I'm going to try this and whatever. No, there's a whole agenda behind this. Yes. Yeah.
1: So we are very much in the midst of it with a facility that may or may not be the best fit, but it is a place that said yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And our other option was to a friend to pick him up and take him to the hospital Mm -hmm. where he may or may not have said what was right to get admitted. And we had a yes from a facility, but we had an insurance hiccup because we were crossing state lines and we needed an in provider to do. So it it was a system and, and we advocated with all the big people who make big decisions that basically would say, we don't think this is the best choice to which I said, okay, then I'm open to other options. What do you have? And there's Mm -hmm. no other answer.
0: Exactly. So
1: there's a lot of criticism, but not a lot of providing of other resources for us because, you know, it came down to, well, you didn't try partial hospitalization. Okay. Well, where we live, it's an hour to two hours away, depending on traffic Mm -hmm. from nine to three. And we still have to eat. Mm-hmm. So somebody has to work in our family mm-hmm. and that doesn't account for, from 4 PM to 9 AM what's going to happen. And there's, it's not safe in our home for him.
0: Yeah. And these
1: aren't, aren't, they may be adoption informed, but they're not reactive attachment disorder qualified And, you know, we've gone through all the professionals. I, I, am a professional and I'm not qualified to handle yep. him. Yep. But I'm not a professional at home. I'm a mom. Exactly. I probably had a, a starting point different than a lot of rod moms because yeah, I already did knew yeah. where to start. I mean, he was in neurofeedback before he was even right. legally our child.
0: Right. You know, if those higher levels of care cannot, manage and handle and work with these kids, I don't know why they think going back home to a lower level of care, not saying that parents aren't skilled, you're a therapist, I'm in healthcare. you know, and we can't, it's because it's bigger than that, but that disconnect about why that's okay, and then the disconnect on the little things about, well, why didn't you do A, B, and C? Well, we you didn't consider the fact that we have to work, we have to eat, we have to pay bills, it's, it's a disconnect, even on the little level of what parents just have to do to survive.
1: This is like, well, we can, yeah, we put a behavior aid in your home. Well, you promised that months ago and Mm -hmm. you never followed through. We live Mm -hmm. in a rural community Mm -hmm. with not a lot of resources and we traveled. We, we've used all the neighboring States and phone consults with people across the country and, and some in other countries to, to really do the things. Yeah.
0: Christine, it- we're in the same situation, small rural town, and that's a whole different world. What you're saying is exactly the same for us as you utilize experts and everybody, or they don't show up, right? You call, you wait months and nobody shows up, or you don't even know the services there because people in your town and healthcare system don't even know it exists. And you find it out through the back door and then you're investigating going down that rabbit hole. I mean it's hard I think on any level but the rural piece of it you're right that's that's a huge huge other factor that uh, really makes things even more difficult it's for difficult sure. for everybody though it's, it's nuts
1: yeah so we're we're in them at 7 and I don't know what will happen at at max this will be a 12 to 18 month placement and then we will have to decide I don't know that he'll make it that whole time mm-hmm.
0: And talk about that. What do you want people to know about that? Because I think a lot of rad parents we go through uh, our child is in a certain setting, but it's not like they're there permanently. And it's not like, you know, when they're going to come home or not. So sometimes you're living and most times you're living on this roller coaster of, okay, uh, they're there for three weeks and then we do a reeval, and are they going to come home in that three weeks or are they going to get another three weeks? So just this constant hope, despair, fear, terror, like you say, your son is in a place that could potentially and should potentially be a twelve to eighteen month placement. But what's mm-hmm. to say he couldn't come home in a week? What is that like to live, even in that uncertainty? What do you do? I
1: get like a monster outside of your your house. The door's closed, but you don't know if it can come in at any moment. You dance with always looking at all the options you know I felt like at Tupelo I could relax a little but as I relax just was getting to the point where I could breathe full lungs again he disrupted there Mm -hmm. and it's his pattern he sabotages the good stuff we know Mm -hmm. this and it's I don't know that it's him the disorder I don't know I dance on that all the time but either way it is what it is And now it's the kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop always. And yet trying to also do all the other things in life that I do. I mean, I'm, I do theater. I own my own, we own businesses. We have another child. We're active at our church and in community events and doing all of those things. But with, it's that juggling, which all parents do, but it's a different level. It's a different level. And it's just different. And, and I want to do that for him, but I want him to want healing and I can't do that for him. So I have to wait for him to do it or accept that he won't. Right. And learning to live in uncertainty. Always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just when you yeah. find that it undoes itself in some capacity. I mean, even just with the pandemic thrown in there in the midst of it. Uh, right.
0: Right. All yeah. of that. I'm so glad that you shared your story and I'm so glad that right now in this very moment, right? Focus on the present right now, right here. <laughs> He's safe and healthy and said, and, yes, and you're safe and healthy and your family and your other,
1: your daughter. And tomorrow will be there and I will continue to research places, but knowing that maybe it will last. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much. I'm really glad you were here to share your story
1: today. Appreciate you doing what you're doing to shine some light.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.